here today with uh, Modern Urology with uh, Dr. Mike Gambla from the Central Ohio Urology Group uh, at in beautiful, sunny, freezing Chicago. cold Chicago uh, uh, during the uh, annual Lugput meeting. And Mike, welcome and thanks for joining us today. And thanks for having me, Todd. This is, right. uh, this is great. Yeah, I'm going to dive right in. And okay. uh, I want to ask you, one of the big buzzes at this meeting, and it's probably been going on for the last couple of years, is the whole concept of private equity and uh, the acquisition of groups and merging of groups under acquisitions. You know, what's your thoughts on that just in general? You know, it's, a, it's an obviously interesting topic. It is definitely the buzz in the hot area of, of urology right now, particularly with the private groups. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've seen it evolve early on with some of the early acquisitions where it was really hot and then it kind of cooled down a little bit and I think it's starting to see a little bit more of a rise right now. Um, because I, I think groups are trying to position themselves for the next five to ten years. Um, I think that the, the private equity concept is, is actually a really good one for urology. So my feeling on it is this, that a lot of groups sometimes struggle with the ability to grow. And how do they grow if they don't have any capital, if they don't have any direction? And so when you add in somebody from the outside who can perhaps lend themselves with more knowledge base, more capital, it gives these perhaps even smaller groups, maybe the eight and 12-man groups who maybe struggle in the middle zone versus the very, very large groups, an opportunity to stay independent. And that's really what Lugpa's about, and I think that's what a lot of what we've done in our past careers is all about staying independent. Would a group that's owned by private equity be considered, be truly independent though? Great question, and kind of an interesting one, because are you independent if you're semi-owned by somebody else? Right. I think when we talk about independence, you know, this conversation to me is independent from a hospital. So we're still, we're still in our environments. We still can operate together synergistically with a third party, but we're not under the auspices of a hospital conglomerate where you have no control and you're simply an employee. So I, I think the balance is struck where, you know, we don't want to be all alone in a, in a changing world. We need a partner who can help us, but we don't want to be completely under somebody else's rule. Advantages, obviously, are, are that for growth. Where, where do you see some of the disadvantages of, of being, you know, part of a private equity acquisition? So it's the unknown, right? I mean, when, when you bring on a, another person, it, you bring in a partner, any partner, a new partner to your practice, the unknown, is that person going to stay? How is that going to affect the group? Well, this isn't just an, uh, a, a urology partner. This is a financial partner. So there's an inherent risk in understanding will they execute well on what they told you they're going to do. Um, you, you know the financials are there. They have the capital, but... Will they blend well with you? Because it's part of a culture. I mean, the nice thing about these groups is that over the years, urology has been fortunate to, to develop culture amongst, our, amongst the, all the large groups, but even in the practices, they figure that out. The question is when you bring in another person, will, they, will you adopt their culture or will they adopt yours or can you find that meeting? Because you know, the, the objective here is to grow and to keep the culture somewhat the same. And so I think that's, the, that's probably the, the disadvantage is the unknown of whether they'll execute well, keep your culture, um, and will there be sort of rules, regulations, things that you're not currently familiar with imposed upon you that you didn't anticipate. Uh, culture is a big, big issue. Uh, you and I are both involved in you know, helping groups come together within the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, do you see this, this you know, same thing as one of the groups that have merged to become bigger, which they started out these small two, three-man practices all kind of come together into these bigger, you know, we'll call them lugpa groups. Right. Um, and the culture was a big issue then. Um, 
And sometimes even after 10 years, some of that culture hasn't, you know, melded together yet. Sure. Do you see a culture like this of groups that have come together where they still haven't identified or unified under a single culture having problems with these kinds of acquisitions? Great, great question. You know, I think that could be a problem because if you don't have an established culture, then someone's going to establish it for you. And it may not be to your liking, especially with, in large groups, lots of individuals. Urologists have a lot of different personalities. And, and, really? You know, I, never, I, well, yeah, I, you know, I never would have known that. You know, getting them all fenced in is a little bit difficult at times. There's, so, a, lot, there's a lot of insight in that state. <laughs> there is. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is we have, on our own, over the last 10 years, managed to figure out at least how to come together with groups that at one point would never have talked. So, so we've reached some really big hurdles there. Um, but I don't think that the, the group can truly be successful with or without a partner if the culture isn't somewhat unified. So you know, some of these larger groups are, aren't structurally tight, um, and I think that they will have a lot more... Um, the unforeseen that we just talked about of bringing a third party become more difficult because the unification there will be not as... Um, compelling. But don't you think some of these, you know, these private equity groups, this is what they do for a living. They, they take over these places. Can't you see also that maybe an advantage for some of these groups that aren't as tight so they could be brought together by this third party that can examine them? Could be that way. Um, I think the way they'll be brought together, though, will be on a financial side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talk about culture. and Is culture financial or is culture just the groups that they get along and they can, you know, Proceed in, proceed in a way, work yeah. together to, mo- to move a project. Right, like a bunch of lemmings falling off a cliff yes. kind of culture. Okay. So, right, exactly, because yeah. if one falls, then many will fall. <laughs> exactly. So, so it, it does bring an interesting point, though, because if you have um, a very loosely affiliated culture, someone comes in, provides the capital, um, you know, will everyone just follow because that's, that's just what they do? If you have a strong culture, um, will that provide more guidance? And I think that has not been identified yet because I think there are some very, very strong groups that are undergoing acquisitions and their leadership is very strong and we're going to see how that pans out. I think you'll see other groups where it's more moderate and um, more loosely affiliated and I think that that could potentially be a struggle in getting all of them because remember, when this all happens, the group ultimately has to vote together as one. To, to go into this type of a, a transaction, right? I mean, it's not one person who says we should do this. The group does it. So you, you've got this group that says, yes, let's do this. But if they're not really together, how, how firm is that decision a year later, two years later? That's where I think things could start to break apart. Yeah. Modeling of these kind of things. You know, how, I know that you're very familiar with you know, different structures of some of these. Um, can you just, just describe one or two different kind of models how these things would work for a group? As far as... Uh, yeah, how they structure it. How, how, you know, group is going to be, we're talking to private equity. You know, what's the deal? You know, how, how, are, how are we going to go into this? You know, what's the, you know, I guess the most important thing is, what's the financial structure? How, how do or, or the groups benefit financially up front? And uh, obviously sure. these groups, you know, private equity doesn't buy anybody um, to be altruistic. They're going in there right. to, to make... You know, capital for potential resale to somebody. Right, it's always the second bite of the apple right. everyone it's talks the, about, it's right? The, it's the second one. It's the, you know, private equity, small private equities do these things and they sell it to bigger ones, they sell it to bigger ones. It's kind of like the fish eating the fish you know, picture. So, you know, models that you're familiar with, just, just kind of give me an example of, of what 
some of these groups might be expecting when they talk, sit down and talk to private equity about you know, this is what we're going to propose right. to you. So, so the first thing I think that you have to establish is, and, and this, these words get tossed around, is you know, the multiple, right? Everyone's got to find out what their multiple is. You have to understand what the multiple is about. It's not on your gross revenue. It's not on the fact that you guys brought in an, you know, X amount. It's based on what the actual profit margin is. The EBITDA. The EBITDA, okay. right. So that's another term. So, yeah. so it's really, even getting into these conversations, I think it's really important if the group doesn't have somebody who's really familiar with these, the terminology, that they get some sort of third-party consultant or guidance from you know, a banker, so, somebody who can help formulate so, what's happening. So here. this is where the investment banker comes in. Right. Investment so, banker acts as, as in, in for mediator. all of you. It's a mediator with knowledge base on both sides. Right. So forgive me for the analogy, but they're like the real estate agent. They are the real estate agent. And they okay. do take a fee, by the they, way. And they Just like a, a real estate agent. Absolutely. And so be prepared for that as well, because yeah. they will take their fee. But, you know, when you're talking about these transactions, you know, what's our core knowledge base? We're urologists. We're not financial wizards. I mean, we may have built groups and done things and, and worked around revenue cycle, but when you're talking transactions of this magnitude, you know, just as you would buy a house, you have a realtor to help you guide you through things you're not familiar of, zoning, et cetera. Here, you need somebody, at least in my opinion, who can guide you to make sure that you're, A, getting the best multiple, making sure that you're vetting through all the offers appropriately, um, and then making sure that the EBITDA you do present is the right EBITDA mm -hmm. because every little change affects what you receive. Correct. Every little bit of the EBITDA is multiplied in the multiple. Exactly. So, so we've got EBITDA and multipliers going. So right. that, that's then, your starting base. And then you have, you know, besides the investment bankers in this, the, you know, the, the, the next third party is the attorneys. Yeah, let's not forget them because they yes. are the additional piece right. to this. Right? And so they, they're, they're like your closing people, right? Yeah. They're the closers. Right? Right. They, they come in at the end and they they, they check Yeah, but they in. also they're you know I guess you know the, from the group side they're they're your protectors. They're they're reading the documents. They're understanding that you know because you you read you and I read one of these documents prepared and they're not in English. They're in legal and right. uh, you know it's a you need a PhD to sometimes to decipher. And it's it. on both sides, right? Exactly. Because you've got your lawyer. And they have and theirs. And they have theirs. Right. So now you have to have that next level of conversation where you're, you know, going through different bits and pieces of the contract and, um, you know, how can they let go? How does this, it, there's always the question of how does this exit if it doesn't work out? Because that's always people's fears. What if this doesn't work out? What if after a year, both parties are unhappy or one side's unhappy? Or what if we don't ever want to be sold to a hospital? Can we get that in our contract, right? Because yeah. the whole conversation here is about we want to be independent yeah. so we don't want to ever be sold to a hospital yeah i guess so all this contractual stuff is another layer on top of the financials so you've got sort of I, there's like four models but four four layers to this you've got the group and just what the group's doing and then you've got private equity comes in and they have a discussion but then that's going to boil up to ebitda multiples financials um, there's things called a data room where all the data from your practice gets put into so that it can be viewed by multiple private equities so that has to take place. So there's a, there's a whole process, and then the lawyers have to get involved. So there, there's there's a graduated level on each step, and then of course the investment banker is somewhere in there. When that data room starts, you need somebody on your side from the financials helping prepare all that data. Don't you visually you know, perceive the data room kind of as an auction block, and you sit there and there's you know a bunch of guys, little cards, and, and they say you know, and, and C O U G is is up. You know, you know, do I hear a multiplier one point five? Do I hear yeah. a multiplier two? That, you know, that's what I perceive as some of this is going on. I guess that's what you want is people bidding on you to drive up your multiple. Or right. I kind of viewed it like a giant vault, like the vault is there. And who, who gets to open the keys to see what's inside, right? Because we've put all our financials, we've loaded all our documents, all our contracts and agreements, everything's sitting in there. 
And the question is, who, who gets to turn the keys? Well, and you know, we're you opening probably those keys. recently saw like Ready Player One. That's that cult concept. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> right. Yeah. You're watching way too many. Movies. Right, way too many the videos. Right. All right. Well, what I, what I don't think our the listeners probably don't understand is you and I have known each other for about 20 years. Yeah. And you know, there was a threat that went on when when I was you know, and I'll say you, I know you're a good doctor because I trained you, and if, <laughs> if, if you suck, it's my fault. <laughs> um, so, but more importantly than that, when we first met your entire residency training and whether you got to operate was contingent on, tell the story. On whether I painted your kids' room. That's right. <laughs> right. So, That's right. So, you know, I supplied the pizza and you right. came over with uh, Cliff Massimo yeah. and, uh, and painted my kids' room. And I think that's really right. important. That We got the baby room ready. Everything was prepared. I, I completed my residency appropriately right. with that checkbox. Yes, that was, that was definitely contingent on that. And then to let you know, my kid's about to graduate from college this year. So right, amazing. It's gone from you terrifying her with the color that you painted <laughs> to she actually is reasonably well-adjusted considering you had influence and I did in her life. <laughs> One more thing I want to talk to you about, and I'm going to drop the, uh, the equity thing about, is you know, your group has done a lot with kind of service lines. Mm -hmm. you know, and you, you, know, you do the um, voiding dysfunction uh, right. service line. Tell me how, how your group has, has done with that and, and the analytics involved and, and how you've been able to really kind of solidify that. And, and you can talk specifically about yours and, and how that's gone because I think that's important for some of these uh, groups out there who don't have them and don't see the benefits of, of creating a specific service line within your practice. I actually I think it's really critical. And, and you've run a large group in the past. Um, you understand that when you get these larger groups, not everybody can do everything well. I mean, they just can't. It, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. Right. It's overwhelming. Yeah. So, you know, I think the concept, um, and it really started with the prostate cancer stuff, you know, as far as early on is like, say, hey, we should, we should segment out these advanced cancer patients because they need a different level of care. And that was sort of the forefront. Um, and, and I think we, it, our particular group, you know, focused a lot of energy, time, and money in that particular arm, arm of the business. Um, with good outcomes for, for patients and for the practice. And then that evolved into sort of the OAB market bubbled up as the next obvious place to go because unlike advanced cancer, which has, you know, what, two, maybe 100, 200 patients per practice, 300 patients, OAB has thousands, tens of thousands of patients. Right. So it's, it's probably a, almost a majority of what we do. Right. Exactly. So, so how, do you, how do you look at that service line? And, and I think it's important for practices to sort of, I don't want to use the KOL and all this, you know, champions. Look, you need somebody who knows the field and feels passionate about it. That's what it, that's what a champion is. It's it's somebody who can help get the other members of the group to say, "Hey, let's bring patients into the fold that belong here." Right. Right. And, At and this point in time, not not initially, but mm -hmm. you know, after they've been vetted through their 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 disease process and they're not progressing in the right way, mm -hmm. let's get them to a different level with somebody who has very passionate care models. And, and drive that. And I think that drives a lot of growth for the practice. It allows for a lot of innovation. So, you, you know, you get to, let's just say an overactive bladder, you get to the third line therapies, which we've now become all sort of familiar with this concept that there's an algorithm for OAB. And um, you've got third line therapies that are um, more dedicated types of activities that, you know, more specialist-like people do. I'm not saying that, you know, general urologists can't do it, but there's sort of a a niche, if you will, that people can carve out for themselves within the practice, which, you know, on that topic, when, when a practice looks at this and says, hey, we, we can do uh, an advanced cancer line or an OAB line or uh, a stone line, it actually gives people the chance to sort of evolve again. 
you know, I think as physicians, we're doing general urology, we're running around, but when you get the chance to sort of dive deep into something, mm-hmm. and, and, and you as a stone guy in the past, you know, yeah. you, you kind of feel good about that. Yeah. Like, you kind of get to know a topic a lot better, and ultimately, you're giving better patient care. Well, yeah, it's if you're, I always say if you're interested in something, you're always better at it. If you have no interest in something, you kind of do it. You may be okay or good enough, right. but if you're really dedicated to something, and then, you know, that's the benefit for the patient. And, you know, you, you touched on something about, you know, first line, second line, third line therapies. I think, you know, what we do is we, you know, we, can all, we all do first line therapies. And, right. you know, you have to have an algorithm. But I think for the patient, it's important that they understand that there are second and third line therapies. So if the first lines don't work, because such a huge percentage of patients, and, and I'll use OAB for an, you know, probably oh, yeah. the best example Absolutely. of this, that fail first line, don't ever come back because they don't think there's anything else they can do. Right. So how do you guys in your practice identify those patients who you may have lost um, and then bring them along that algorithm to second, third line therapies? Do you have a process yeah. by which you do that? Yeah, we actually adopted a lot of the initial sort of models we did with the advanced cancer program of navigation. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's one of the things kind of blending in the private egg discussion is, you know, how do you hire navigators? How do you afford to hire navigators? You have to capitalize that. So but, having some capital allows us to branch out into the navigation and bring that into different aspects of our practice. Yeah, but I think we've all, I mean, and you've seen this too, yeah. the, the ROI on a navigator is generally very positive. It is generally. positive. Yes. But, the, the, but more importantly, what you mentioned is keeping the patients in the practice. Right. So you can do first-line therapies, and what we've done is we've, we've added navigation. So more navigation is, is a very helpful piece. But we've tried to educate all the physicians in the group that we, you know, we now have, um, you know, like a tearaway that just shows the first line, second line, and third line therapy. So when every single patient comes in in their initial meeting, they have an opportunity to see the algorithm and know that they're here, or they may be coming here, or at this point, we're going to give you to this other guy down here. So when they get that initially, so that's the educational piece to the patient, and the and sort of the platform of how we do that is already established then it's easier for the navigator to call in and say, hey, is that medication working? Oh, it's not working. Let's move you to the next step. Well, they already have been exposed to the next step, to your point about you know, getting that out in front. So I think it's a combination of good education materials from all the physicians to the patient, then layer on the navigation after that, and then have your, your um, passionate you know, physician who can do a deep dive in that specialty. Uh, one last question. Um, analytics. Love the topic. Okay. Analytics is, is, is a huge topic, and we, we can't do any of these kind of service lines. We can't navigate. You can't do anything without analytics. I know you're, you're a big analytics guy. Probably the Red Sox this year could have used you because they just <laughs> didn't do it. They didn't make it. No, didn't make not it this year. But, you know, it, it used and to be... And the, the Cubs took their own off, too. Yes. Well, you know, the... The thing about it is, being a Red Sox fan, it was always wait till next year. And yeah. now, that, since we've won four in the last you know, 10 years or so, it's, gee, you, know, you can't win it every year. Unless right. you're, of course, the Patriots, then you can. Right. But anyway, talk to me about you know, just your thought in, in, uh, you know, about analytics. You don't have to go anything specific about it. Just in general, um, the need for a group to adopt some formal analy- analytic process. Yeah, I, I, I think in today's marketplace with the way our patients are and the disease states and the differentiation we're talking about, subspecializing within practices, trying to do navigation, um, trying to retain volume. I think if you don't have some form of analytics, 
being utilized. And there are multiple platforms to, to go to. So it's not just one. There, there are multiples out there that you can choose from um, and invest in. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a struggle. I mean, you're always just going to wait for the next one, wait for the next patient. Whereas if you truly want to drive the practice, drive the growth of the practice, um, if you have analytics, you know, you can do so much. You can, you can really dive deep into a particular topic. You can look at the practice on, on a whole dashboard level. Uh, I think when you do analytics, you really understand where the gaps are in the practice. And that's something that we didn't do five or seven, ten years ago. We didn't really understand the gaps. We just, patients came in, patients went out. Mm -hmm. To your point with OEB where people are lost after the first, we, we didn't know that. Now that we have analytics, we can understand what our percent loss is or our percent growth is. You know, what therapy are we using more of next year or last year and, and do comparatives. Um, I, I think without analytics, it's really hard to understand how to even build a, a practice in today's sort of marketplace. How do you add new physicians without knowing what type of physician to add, right? If you're, if, you're already, if you're doing robotics, but you don't know what your prostate cancer volumes look like across that and, and what's, you know, what that marketplace is, the depth of it, it's really hard to say we, should, we need a robotics guy or we need a generalist or we need, you know, you're just, you're just grabbing at somebody. You're not really placing somebody. And so I think today's, especially with all the residencies, most of the kids are doing fellowships now. You know, a lot of people are doing fellowships. So yeah, a lot certainly are. Yeah, so, so I think you, you, the analytics is not just about you know, growth and practice. It's really about who do you hire? What's our timing? Maybe you could even forecast out a year or two, hey, we're going to grow this segment of the market because we're going to do analytics and we're going to need this type of guy to fill that in later on. So I, th I think it gives you a lot more insight to growth um, for the practice on a lot of levels, not just like a financial or a disease, but there, there's, it's more integrated. Yeah. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time to join no, us. This was great. Yeah, this no, was great. really. Glad to run into you. Yeah, I'm glad we had a chance to talk and uh, I... I the only thing is, you know, because of you, my daughter's deathly flavored the color yellow. And, um, but I think she's... she's Canary yellow was a great color back then. I, yeah, I it, was, it was a dominant color in, in my household back then. And, and you know, you really kind of overdid it. But, uh, you know, I hope the pizza was worth it. And, you know, for... for the, the training was pretty good, too. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, enjoy the rest of the meeting. And I'll speak to you soon. Take thanks care. Thanks a lot, Todd. Great talking to you.